0: I am going to tell you a story that a powerful state doesn't want you to know, about tens of thousands who have disappeared.
1: Once they get into the hands of the military,
2: they will be tortured brutally.
0: It's a story so dangerous to tell that for some, it's meant ending up on a kill list.
2: She was seen as a dangerous political actor
0: and a threat to Pakistan's security, but she was a local hero. The Kill List, a six-part investigative podcast, available now. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. The Resurrection Podcast is the story of Dane Stewart, a playwright in Montreal, and what he did with a cache of love letters and scripts by a playwright named Daryl Allen, who died in 1991 from HIV-AIDS. It's a big rabbit hole of a podcast that took five years to create. A small team in Montreal produced the podcast independently. If you like what you hear today... You can listen to the rest of the episodes by searching for Resurrection on all podcast platforms. Now, here's the first episode of Resurrection.
3: I'm Dane Stewart, and I spent the past five years trying to learn everything I can about one man. A man who died in 1991, the same year I was born. A man who had sex with men, like I do. But his sexuality came at a cost that mine never did. A man who loved, hard, harder than anyone I know. A man named Daryl
2: Allen. Daryl was someone who came into my life at a time when I was just coming out. And he was my mentor, my tutor, just an all round kind person.
3: Daryl spent his life traveling Canada and the United States, living out of suitcases and writing plays for the theater. But before he had the chance to make it as an artist, before he had the chance to share his writing with the world, he died.
2: For him to die of AIDS, and he fought. Okay, he had two different kinds of cancers, and he fought.
3: I started this project to honor that fight to honour Daryl, and all the other queers who died from AIDS. To help my generation understand how, whether we realise it or not, our queer communities, our sexual identities are shaped by what Daryl went through. But this project has become about more than the AIDS crisis. Because Daryl was more than the AIDS crisis. He was a whole person. He never wrote plays about AIDS. He wrote plays about what came before. For him, that included stories about past relationships, about his mom, and about struggling with his sexuality in the middle of the Vietnam War.
2: He would wake up screaming at night sometimes. To really know what goes on inside somebody's head while they're in it, I mean, it's, it's difficult to comprehend.
3: It is. But I'm going to try. This is the story, the whole story, about the life and death of Daryl Allen. This is Resurrection, a podcast that tells the stories of ordinary queer people who were lost to HIV. Before I dive into Daryl's story, I'd like to share with you something that I've learned through my research. You see, I'm not a reporter, I'm not a detective, I'm not a genealogist, I'm just a gay kid who likes to nerd out over queer history. This project has taught me the challenges of piecing together the life of someone who died only 30 years ago. A regular man whose life wasn't preserved by any form of celebrity status or archived through the social media that defines my generation. It's taught me just how quickly our personal histories can be lost to the ages, and just how little we often know about the people around us. I like to call this the great-uncle effect.
2: So my great-uncle would be a brother of any of
3: my grandparents? I'd like you to think for a moment about your great-uncle. If you never knew your great-uncle, you can use a great-aunt, a great-grandparent, a second cousin. But what do you know about that person? Can you tell me their name? Their birthday. Can you picture what they looked like when they were young? I asked a few of my friends about their great uncles.
2: I wasn't close enough with any of my grandparents to know any great uncles.
3: You might know what they did as a career, who they married, how many kids they had. But can you tell me the story of the first person they loved? Do you know what kept them up at night? What made them worry? What pissed them off?
2: I met one of my great uncles. His name was Gee, And one time at a funeral, he gave me a toonie for sitting on his lap. <laughs> I wish I had something more interesting and less creepy to tell you. He seemed like a nice guy overall, though.
3: During this project, I've come to understand the distance between generations. The great uncle effect. It's just how little we know about the people separated from us by two generations, or even by one.
2: Uh, (laughs) I can only think of one. I know i probably had more than one. But uh, great-uncle Larry uh, had a wife named Helga, and I really liked Helga. I don't know much about Larry, to be honest. And she gave me her china, and actually the pillow...
3: I sleep on A's also inherited, which means it's probably 50 or 60 years old. I should get a new pill. The distance between generations is bigger than I knew when I started this journey. But I hope to close that gap, even just a little bit, with this project. So, how did it all start? Before 2016, I'd never heard of Daryl Allen, nor had anyone, really, only a handful of people alive on the planet today remembered this man whose life was full of friends and vibrance only 30 years ago. That's not that far back. But then, isn't that how it works for most of us? Our story starts in Montreal. I've lived in Montreal for the past 10 It's a city like no other, with winters so cold that the winds burn your face when you step outside, and summers filled with park beers and bike lanes and late-night sweaty dancing. It's the city where I fell in love for the first time with a boy who kissed me at midnight in a snowstorm. And it's also one of the gayest cities on the planet with a complicated history of queers living and loving, organizing and resisting. As a small-town queer from Canada's east coast, I felt myself pulled to Montreal like a magnet when I turned 18. It's the closest city where I felt like I could fit in. I'd spent my teenage years wrestling with a darkness inside me that fed off the lack of acceptance in my small town in Nova Scotia, that fed off my own fear of who I was, of my sexuality. I moved to Montreal to get away from that darkness. Fast forward to August 14th, 2016. I've been in Montreal for seven years. I'm 25 and living my gay fantasy in the city. I just marched in my very first pride parade with thousands of other queers and I was about to meet a man who had changed my life.
2: Uh, my name is Daniel Wiley. I go by Dan, Danny, and some other sundry names, but uh, that's, that's just a joke there.
3: Our story starts with a chance encounter between me and Dan Wiley.
2: Uh, We met at Pride. I think it was 2016.
3: I was wearing a leather harness with a chain and a padlock around my neck and surrounded by my friends. We finished the parade and went to L'Aigle Noir.
2: Upstairs at uh, L'Aigle Noir.
3: The Black Eagle, Montreal's gay leather bar. For a drink.
2: We were all pretty happy after Pride. Um, Little intoxicated.
3: The Black Eagle used to be a hardcore leather bar with all sorts of acts happening in the dark corners. Disgusting. Or arousing, depending on your perspective. But these days, it's more of a gay sports bar. Crammed onto the second floor, I was chugging pints and throwing shade with my friends.
2: There was a group, a group of your friends, you were together, and uh, Michael and I sort of squirmed our way into your little circle of people, and from there we got to know each other quite well. It's been very nice getting to know you more.
3: Dan is a gray-haired man with a big, bushy, white beard. He might get angry if I say this, but at times he reminds me of Santa Claus. He has big, vulnerable eyes that crinkle in the corner when he smiles. And he's a generation above me.
2: And I'm 62. I'll be 63 at the end of October.
3: And his face is weathered.
2: It's been a roller coaster of a life.
3: Dan and I got along great the first time we met. Over the course of the next year, we saw each other at events around the city. Gay bars, queer fundraisers, kinky soirees. We would hug, we would chat, we were friends, for sure, but not close ones. Almost exactly one year later, I produced a play I'd been working on. I'd like to write and direct. It was about Montreal's queer community. The play was called The History of Sexuality, and it was based on interviews I did delving into the queer history of Montreal. The play presented queer people as they are. Kinksters, sex workers, grad students. No sensationalizing, just ordinary queer people. I find these sorts of projects help me to understand myself. Hearing the stories of other people's queerness, their struggles, their celebrations, it helps me feel more secure, more justified in my own sexuality. Dan came to see the premiere.
2: We went to one of your plays, um... In fact, we went to the same play, I think, two or three times. Michael, I think, went three times. I went twice.
3: A few days after the play closed, I got a text from Dan. Dane, I want to congratulate you on your recent theater success, Hugs from an Old Dog. I've come across a piece of my history, as well as a play. I dated a man in the late 70s, early 80s. I met him in San Francisco, American. Daryl Allen is his name. He was a playwright. I don't think any of his plays actually got to the stage, but I have a copy of one of his pet projects, and I think it would just be a waste if I just threw it away. Not sure what else I could do with it and was wondering if you'd be interested in it, at least to read. We met a few weeks later at a cafe a few blocks from my house. Dan handed me a script, about 80 pages, typed using a typewriter, with pen ink scrawled across the papers, marked up with edits. And the first page was missing, the title page.
2: Mustang 01 is Daryl. I mean, it's it has all kinds of portions of his life in there and his struggles and some of his family life.
3: Mustang 01, I learned, was the title of the play, set in the middle of the Vietnam War. Daryl was a veteran of the war, and Dan saw the play as one of Daryl's ways of processing what had happened to him. Though it was fictional, Dan told me, the play had autobiographical elements.
2: This was his way of uh, perhaps being able to uh, put it out there. And he basically told me that that, that was one of the reasons why he, he gave it to me. So I accepted it, and uh, I kept them. I mean, it's been a long time. I mean, he passed in 91, so it's a long time.
3: 30 years. And now, finally, Dan was doing what he could to preserve Daryl's legacy. I took the script home and dived into it. I asked Dan what to expect, what he remembered from the play.
2: I think I remember the beginning where they're in the control booth, control tower type thing.
1: The operations room of the radar site at Udorn Air Force Base, Thailand, takes up the center portion of the stage. The operations board looms up menacingly center front, so most of the audience has to look through the board into the dark room. The main board shows the outline maps of northern Thailand, Laos, and part of North Vietnam. The dark room overpowers the set and has an ominous feel about it. It is like a gigantic, dark womb.
3: Mustang 01, or Mustang as I'll call it, is what drew me into Daryl, to Daryl's life. While I want to share it with you, at this time, I can't. In order to understand Mustang, in order to appreciate it, you need to understand the man behind it. What I can tell you is that Mustang is a play about trauma. The trauma of war and the trauma of sexual repression. The play follows two men in the U.S. Air Force deployed together in Thailand. Through the hardship of the war, the men find solace in one another, romantically, sexually, but as you might expect, in the military at that time, they struggle to accept the love they have for one another, struggle to overcome the shame. Then, one night, One of the men pleads with the other. Asks him to overcome his shame to accept his feelings. Felt like he was talking directly to me. To that darkness inside me. This is that man's monologue. I know you're afraid. I am too, way down deep. But I'm more afraid of not discovering who I really am. If what I am means I must go against all... I'll do so. There are many who would be horrified at what we do to each other. There are many who couldn't look us in the eye. There are many who, in the name of their religions, would hate and vilify us. There are those who would be so insecure with themselves that they would kill us the most and rant and rave and call us names of the least. Yes, our families would probably turn away and feel ashamed and disgraced for a while, and yes... Someday, I may have to face my child to explain what I am, but by God, when I feel toward you like I've never felt for any other human being, when I feel like I do when you're not near, when I feel so content and full and real and good after we've made love, those other people are damn wrong. And I wouldn't turn away from you for all the persecution in the world. The reason I go to Pride, the reason I was at that parade in 2016, the reason that I met Dan at that gay bar, it's not because I feel proud. It's because I feel shame. We don't celebrate Pride out of arrogance. We celebrate it so we have something to hold on to when those voices come at night. Reading this passage from Mustang and hearing those same voices of shame echoing from Daryl from generations before me, all of a sudden, I no longer felt like I was looking at a historical artifact. I felt like I was looking in a mirror. This wasn't the last time Daryl made me feel that way. After I read the play, I have only one question. Who was this man? Who was Daryl Allen?
2: His laughter, okay, would fill a room completely. If he started to laugh, you knew exactly where Daryl was in the room. And it didn't matter if it was five people or 50 people. You could hear his voice and you could hear, hear his laugh anywhere you were. He had such a booming voice and um, extremely mas- masculine sounding voice, you know. And uh, what's one of the f- uh, features that sort of attracted me to him. That along with his charm. He's very charming. He was very charming.
3: Dan and Daryl met in the summer of 1979. Dan was young at the time. I was 21, I think, when we met. I don't
2: remember the exact thing. He was 19 years my senior.
3: This is where we depart from Montreal. Dan had been living in Montreal almost his entire life, but that summer, the summer of 79, he decided to take a trip to San Francisco.
2: My first adult trip all by myself. I was terrified. Why were
3: you going on this trip?
2: It was gay Mecca, San Francisco. Every young gay man wants to go to San Francisco and enjoy the gay Mecca, which is exactly what I did.
3: And it's funny how some things don't change.
2: (laughs) Oh, some things don't ever change.
3: I said that Montreal is one of the gayest cities on the planet, but it has nothing on San Francisco. Looking back through the history books, San Francisco is the epicenter of so much queer history. Gay liberation, Harvey Milk, Drag culture, Pride, Polk Street, and the Castro District, institutions of leather and BDSM, Folsom Street Fair, which remains every Kingster's dream to this day. And of course, San Francisco is one of the queer communities that had its foundation ripped apart by AIDS. But in the late 70s, AIDS had yet to rear its head. The party was going strong.
2: And we met by chance because we were both waiting for a table in a French restaurant. And, and I was just ahead of him. And I guess we, we started chatting with each other. And in San Francisco, and especially in those days, you know, the gaydar goes off. So, you know, you just go from there. He was a man sh- slightly shorter than me. Certainly, physically, he was bulkier. He was muscled. Um, bald, or baldish, and had an air about himself.
3: Dan, the young Canadian kid out in the gay world of San Francisco, was drawn to Daryl, to his charm, to his personality, and to his just confidence.
2: He was so confident in himself. You know, he wasn't afraid to to experience new things. He had been through so much already in his life that he basically just said, fuck it. I'm going, to, I'm going to be me completely, and if I meet interesting people on the way, then I meet interesting people on the way. If I don't,
3: I don't. Dan has told me about this moment over and over again. The anxious excitement that comes from being young in a new place. The fear and possibility that comes from being around other gay men in a city where gay love was more accepted than anywhere else in the world. And the flutter in the stomach that comes from that first moment with someone, that knowing glance that shows they're interested.
2: Cruising is a form of, I guess, stare, (laughs) where you basically make your intentions known. It's eye contact, it's a body language, it's gaydar.
3: Dan knew, and so did Daryl.
2: So I invited him to join me at my table. And from there... It became a torrid love affair for two and a half, three years.
3: Daryl had this effect on Dan. A young kid in his 20s, gay in a world where being gay was wrong. And yet, Daryl had a self-assurance, a self-esteem that could extend beyond himself. It calmed down the darkness that lived inside of the people around him. It calmed down the darkness that lived inside of Dan. Dan tells me a lot about Daryl, about their relationship about Daryl's work as a playwright. And then, a few months after we'd started discussing Daryl, Dan tells me about the letters. Hundreds of pages of handwritten love letters. A secret archive of Daryl's most intimate thoughts. And we're going to get into those letters in just a moment, right after this break. Hey, I'm Charlie Webster. I'm the host of a show called Scamander. It's all about a woman from California named Amanda C. Riley, a beloved member of her local community and dying of cancer. But it was all one big lie. If you think you know what Scamander is about, think again. There is so much to the story that you will not see coming. The pregnancy is reversing the cancer. Listen to the show everyone is talking about. The Twisted Journey of Scamander is available now, wherever you get your podcasts. A few months after Dan had started telling me about Daryl, he tells me about the letters. Hundreds of pages of handwritten love letters that Daryl sent to Dan over the course of their relationship.
2: He was a writer, so it just flowed for him. Um, And he wanted to share his life, whether it was in New York or New Orleans or wherever he was.
3: Beginning the week after Dan left San Francisco, and the two lovers were stranded in different cities on opposite corners of the continent, the two began writing letters, back and forth.
2: Some of the letters were seven, eight, nine pages long. I had more of the difficulty writing letters, but that was part and parcel. That's how you communicated.
3: The entire course of their relationship is meticulously preserved in these letters. And Dan has held on to every letter Daryl ever sent him. Every letter. A few days after telling me this, he gives me a package, hundreds of pages of handwritten love letters. And not just the letters, but Christmas cards, faxes, playbills, photos, a time capsule of Daryl Allen. Dan warns me when he gives me the letters that, I might have a bit of trouble reading them. Daryl had been trained in shorthand, and the shorthand had infiltrated his letter-writing style, so the words on the page were almost impossible to decipher. When I open the first letter, I see what he's talking about. Daryl's cursive is atrocious. It's a series of scrawling loops, messy lines. In reading the first letter, I have to spend time on each word, analyzing it to figure out what he'd written. The first paragraph takes me about five minutes to put together.
1: August 7th, 1979. Dear Danny, I love you. It was marvelous hearing your voice last night. It seems almost impossible to me that this has actually happened. I had about decided that something wonderful
3: like this would
1: never happen. And
3: just look at us now. But despite the time that it takes, I feel for the first time like I'm hearing from Daryl himself.
1: I apologize for not starting this letter last night, but by the time I had a bite to eat and had unpacked, I was exhausted and crawled in bed.
3: Within two paragraphs, I begin to feel Daryl's everyday life, his normalness.
1: I was so angry last Thursday. My flight to Hollywood was 30 minutes late in boarding, and we could have spent more time together. Well,
3: normal, except for his newfound affections for Dan, which made him, at 39 years old, sound like a love-struck teenager.
1: I certainly don't like being in San Francisco without you. What a difference it has made. You've thrown me for a loop, my man. There is simply no way of getting around that.
3: And one other thing stood out to me. Throughout this first letter, he made several references to a woman, a woman named Janet.
1: Janet had to work in Long Beach. The traffic was- Janet and I saw the Muppet movie Friday night, loved it. Then we had a quiet dinner. Janet may have a new lover. He's in advertising. Sunday, employee. we rehearse Janet's one woman show. She is fantastic.
3: Janet is mentioned in these letters more than anyone else, by far. But who was this woman and why was she important to Daryl? Already in just one letter, I am enthralled. I need to know everything I can about this guy. And so, I do what any amateur gay history nerd would do I get to work. For months, I spend all my free time transcribing every last word of every last letter.
1: August 14th, 1979. August 20th, 1979.
3: August 30th, 1979. Here, it is Thursday, September 30th, 30th, 1979.
1: My dearest 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 Danny, work has remained very slow here in the accounting department.
3: Reading someone else's letters is illuminating, it feels exciting, even a little bit illicit. Daryl was becoming a bit of a role model to me, but he never agreed to have me read his letters. He never even knew me. In uncovering him, I was finding myself. He was helping me to fight my own darkness. But is it possible that I was crossing a line by looking into his private life? One of the first times I started asking myself this question is when I learned about his style of living.
1: Until I get a paycheck, I am sleeping in a sleeping bag in the theater office. With work going on the production to all hours and comings and goings and my having to go to work in the mornings, it's far from ideal. Oh well, I'll get a room as soon as I can.
3: I'd assumed that Daryl would have been more anchored than this, more stable, a military discipline. But he chose to live frugally, so he could devote his time and his energy to the people he loved and the art he loved, the theatre.
1: Everything involved with the performance, such as sets, props, etc., are not working out, and we shall have to do some last-minute improvising with what we have. The three leads are still acting like spoiled children, and the tech crew is almost ready to quit on them. Oh well, only two more performances, and I won't be involved again with this turkey. I don't know how Janet keeps her cool with these people.
3: At times, living in a sleeping bag on the floor of the Zephyr Theatre office, Daryl throws himself into productions, and the one person who seems to be there for it all is Janet. And then finally, I stumble upon the passage that tells me exactly who she is.
1: My darling, Janet and I, for all practical purposes, are over. She still doesn't want a divorce, but I did get her to admit that she's afraid if we would divorce, I would disappear. Things are very touchy, and I really don't know what will happen.
3: Janet, the mystery woman, was Daryl's wife. Dan mentioned to me in his very first message that Daryl had an ex-wife, that she was even a character in Mustang. I hadn't realized that while Dan and Daryl were meeting, falling in love and writing feverish letters back and forth, that all that time Daryl was still married, still in touch with his wife, still seeing her nearly every day. Janet, I decide, is the key. I spend hours trying to find her online. There's a program slipped into the letters for Janet's one-woman show. It confirms that, at least in 1979, Janet used Daryl's last name. Janet Allen. Google. No. Janet Allen. LinkedIn. No. Janet Allen. Facebook. There are a few Janet Allens living in California. I send some messages. No, no, no. Janet Allen. If she'd been around Daryl's age, she'd be in her 70s or 80s now. It's possible that she might have avoided being on the internet entirely. Or it's possible that she remarried after Daryl and took another name. With no other leads, no other known relatives of Daryl's, I have to abandon the hunt for Janet and return to the only source of information I've got. The letters.
1: What have you done to me? How awful it is to see you. fill my out. thoughts I look constantly. at your photos every day. The next and time I hold you in see my, see. my arms, I may never let you go. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you.
3: Daryl loves with a kind of force that I've never been capable of. Whenever I've gotten close to it, I feel my darkness. Something about not being good enough. And now here, on the pages in front of me, was a man who didn't overthink it. He jumped in with both feet. I wanted that. I find out that Daryl quickly makes plans to visit Dan in Montreal. Just three months after their love-struck meeting in that French restaurant, the two will be reunited. One of the curious things learning about Dan and Daryl's relationship through these letters is that so much happens in the time between letters. The last letter before Daryl's trip is dated October 10th, 1979.
1: I love you. Only two weeks from today. I am just counting time until I can hold you again.
3: And then we jump forward six weeks. November 20th, 1979.
1: Here it is already a week and a day after I last held you, and I'm just now writing you.
3: There's so much that lives in that gap. The nature of letters is to fill in the gaps apart, but what I want to know is what happens in that time spent together. When Daryl visits Dan for the first time, he flies to New York first.
2: He took the train from New York to, to Montreal. And I remember, I remember this. I remember him getting off the train. And basically, we just flew into each other's arms. Couldn't care less who was around. I remember that very vividly. As, as we speak now, okay, him getting off the train and being there, it's just like, uh, you know, the commercial where you, you have the two people running towards each other and finally, well, that's basically what we
3: did. Two men embracing in the train station. 1979. Dan's nervous, too. He's only met this man once before.
2: You paint a picture in your head from those two or three days. You've You've had time to uh, correspond, whether by phone or or by letter. You have have a, a visual, because I had no pictures of him at this point in time. You had a visual in your mind of, you know, his facial features, but, you know, his body features and everything like that.
3: By the end of that trip, though, Dan would have pictures.
2: There was a friend of mine from work, took some beautiful um, portrait pictures of, mostly of him, but of us as well.
3: In one picture, the two of them are beaming. Daryl wears a white button-up, a salt-and-pepper beard and thinning hair, his smile's so big that his eyes are almost shut and I can see a little gap in his front teeth. His arm hangs around Dan's shoulder, with a hand pulling Dan close. Protective. And Dan, 40 years younger than the Dan I know, is wearing some Canadian flannel with a leather vest on top. Oh, to be gay in the 70s. He looks happy. He looks safe. And though his face is younger, I see the same crinkles in the corner of his eyes. The time they spent together was like an accelerant. Gasoline poured on a fire. The weeks spent in each other's company ignite big and fast decisions. Everything moves quickly once Daryl returns to California.
1: December 6th, 1979. I will probably stay the winter in San Francisco. I have professionally decided to try New York.
3: Daryl is moving to New York to be closer to Dan. And in March of 1980, he pens his first letter from the Big Apple.
1: March 17th, 1980. Happy St. Patrick's
3: Day. And suddenly, we're in New York the city of Stonewall, Daryl's letter reads like a map of New York gay history.
1: Yesterday afternoon, I walked over to Greenwich Village, up and down Christopher and West Street. The last one was probably where a lot of cruising was filmed. I went out on Pier 42 for
3: a while and basked in the sun. And here it is, in New York, that a relationship that seemed impossible begins to transform from the intense romance of early lovers fighting to maintain a connection across the continent to the gentle routine of two boyfriends living just a train ride away. And it's at this point where the letters turn into a predictable pattern, a comforting, rumbling rhythm. Updates on the boredoms of office work, the dingy conditions of Daryl's latest rooming house, playbills from cheap Broadway shows, recountings of nights spent out on the town, all punctuated by gaps of weeks spent together. Trading between Montreal and New York, A picture-perfect relationship. Or at least it seems that way. Daryl portrays it that way in the letters. Dan and Daryl spend the Christmas of 1980 together in Montreal. I know this because of a gap in the letters. The previous letter in my collection was dated December 1st, 1980. I finish my transcription, excited to hear about their first Christmas spent together, and then...
1: January 21st, 1981. Dear Danny, I'm starting this letter and I'm not even certain it will ever be mailed. I have a lot of anger deep inside me. It will be a long time before it will go away, if it does. When I look back on the time we've known each other, I really wonder what the fuck were we doing. I question whether you ever really loved me.
3: Maybe, it turns out, Daryl struggled with a darkness of his own. Hey Happy birthday, 28 years
2: old. Nice to meet you, this is the real you.
3: Resurrection is an independent podcast. If you want to help support us, please rate and review us. It honestly really helps, especially in these early episodes. Or you can consider becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash Podcast. That's one S double R. You can also find a link to our Patreon in the show notes. Matt Rogers is our editor and sound designer and wrote the music in today's episode. Davide Quietseze is the voice of Daryl's letters and scripts. Hannah Sung is our executive producer. Our outro track is called Easy to Love, written for us by Clara Jones. Fact-checking in this episode by Katie Hill. Special thanks to Caitlin and Natalie Prest, Michelle Soicher, Isabel Deluce, Katie Hill, Roger Galvez, Amanda Pelleggi, and the many others who helped me make this episode. Matthew Karyetsimere is the platonic love of my life and my co-producer. Resurrection is written, researched, and hosted by me, Dane Stewart. The creation of this podcast was made possible thanks to the financial support of the Conseil des Arts de Montréal, the Conseil des Arts de, de Québec, and the Canada Council for the Arts. Thanks for listening. See you next time
2: you didn't ask for my impression, but to me there
3: is no question
0: That was the first episode of the new podcast series Resurrection. If you want to hear the next episode, you can listen to it right now by searching for Resurrection on your preferred podcast platform or check out the link in the description for more CBC podcasts go to cbc.ca/podcasts